Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Today, taking the temperature on health talks. It's not just a question of uh, putting more money into uh, what the president of the Canadian Medical Association referred to as a broken system. The federal government couldn't broker a deal on health transfers with provinces and territories in B.C. So where does that leave the health care system, which, as the prime minister just said, some of have also said, is crumbling? We get the provincial side of the stalemate. And the U.S. balance of power hangs in the balance. While the press and the pundits are predicting a giant red wave, uh, it didn't happen. As President Biden celebrates the known victories, the American voters wait for the results in tight races that could shift control in the U.S. Will there be any blowback for Canada? We bring in our ambassador in D.C. Plus, Polyev hits the road. It feels like everything is broken in this country right now. The Conservative leader took questions in B.C. today, blaming the Prime Minister for everything, from inflation to the addiction crisis. Our press gallery digs into the off-Parliament Hill media strategy. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. I am honoured to have earned your trust and your support over these four years. We bet on the people of Pennsylvania, and you didn't let us down. I know it will be the honour of a lifetime to serve as Arkansas's 47th governor. And the prospect of leaving this state for four more years is something for which we are incredibly grateful. Well, votes, votes are still being counted across the U.S. as Democrats and Republicans are in a fierce battle for control of the Senate. But there were some key races settled last night. Democrat John Fetterman took down Republican and TV personality Dr. Oz in a hard-fought race for Pennsylvania's Senate. Greg Abbott held on to the Texas governorship, defeating Beto O'Rourke. And in Florida, Ron DeSantis easily won back the governor's mansion. What about the bitter battle for Georgia's Senate seat? Well, the tight race between Raphael Wernock and Herschel Walker is heading to a runoff. So after a long night with key races still up in the air, can either party really claim victory? Let's find out. Joining me now is CTV News Los Angeles Bureau Chief Tom Walters. He's in Phoenix, Arizona. Hi, Tom. Thanks so much for being with us today. Now, last night was not the red wave that the Republicans were looking for. What happened? Well, that's going to be the question Republican strategists are looking at, and I think they're going to um, really have to come uh, to face the issue of um, election denialism and extremism, because... You know, the, the winds were all in their favor going into these midterms. Uh, they had a, a strong issue to campaign on and campaign pretty effectively on inflation. Um, they had uh, a, a president with relatively low approval ratings, and they had a uh, historical trend that suggests that the, uh, the party in the White House suffers in midterm elections. So all of those things uh, were reason that the Republicans should have performed very much better than they did. What went wrong for them? Well, I think you really do have to take a very hard look at sort of the excesses, if you will, of the Trump message, the, uh, the voter um, you know, fraud claims, the, the big lie, if you will, these debunked and uh, unfounded claims of, of, of fraud that left people feeling that democracy itself was in some danger. Um, that's suddenly looking like pretty bad politics. 
Yeah, I wanted to pick up on Trump. I mean, he has been teasing this big announcement next week. Do these results affect that decision? Probably not. I think, you know, Donald Trump, if nothing else, has a, a, a good deal of self-confidence. Uh, so I, I think that um, he sees himself uh, as the clear front runner among Republicans, nonetheless, for the 2024 election. And he may not be wrong on that. I mean, the polling uh, has certainly shown to this point, has shown uh, Donald Trump uh, as sort of the, as the pick of about half of all Republicans. And that's way more than um, than his nearest rival uh, for a uh, possible Republican nomination for the presidency. So, I mean, he, he certainly has been in solid shape. But I do think that uh, he lost a little bit of uh, political capital uh, in yesterday's midterms. What about the Democrats? What do these results mean for the Biden administration? Well, the reality is still that it's very likely to be a setback in terms of their ability to get things done. Um, you know, the, the Republicans are on pace to take uh, control of the House of Representatives. That's going to open the door to uh, a whole slew of investigations, all kinds of um, difficulty for uh, the president in getting aspects of his agenda through the House, to be sure. And, uh, and the Senate, of course, is still uh, uncertain. So, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not something that can, strictly speaking, be called a win. But, you know, as you know, Mike, in politics, um, success or failure is often measured against expectation. And the expectations for Democrats were very much lower. So for Joe Biden, uh, there is some sense of vindication here and, and, and perhaps of, of that much greater credibility within members of his own party who were uh, wondering about, uh, you know, his approval ratings and his, his uh, viability and his, um, you know, his, his, uh, his strength as a, uh, as a president. CTV's Tom Walters in Phoenix, Arizona for us tonight. Thanks for joining us, Tom. Okay, so what do the midterms mean for Canada? Here's what Prime Minister Justin Trudeau had to say about Canada's relationship with its southern border earlier today. Canadians can know that we will continue to work constructively and productively with the U.S. government, uh, with the administration, uh, regardless of what happens uh, from one election to the next. Uh, it's important that we stay focused on the things that matter for Canadians, uh, keeping them safe, uh, making sure we're fighting inflation, making sure we're growing the economy in ways that are good for right now, but also uh, for years to come. We've always worked closely with the uh, Americans, and we will continue to. Okay, so the prime minister doesn't think the results will significantly change the relationship. But does that mean, and what does it mean for the day-to-day -day work of our top diplomat in D.C.? You know, Canada has spent two years working with and sometimes against the Biden administration to get results for this country. So what would a shakeup on Capitol Hill and in the U.S. Senate mean for Canada's diplomatic strategy? Let's find out. Joining me now from Washington is Canadian Ambassador to the United States, Kirsten Hillman. Ambassador, thanks so much for joining us. I wanted to ask you, these elections are the first since the insurrection on Capitol Hill, and many saw them as the first test of democracy, as there were a number of candidates who were questioning the validity of the 2020 vote. So what do these results say about the state of democracy in the United States? Well, thanks very much for having me. And uh, I think that's a terrific question uh, because, frankly, I think yesterday was a very good day for the U.S. democratic process. There was very high voter turnout, uh, both in advanced polling, mail-in ballots, 
um, and same day election, you know, voting. Uh, it was an orderly, peaceful process. There were a few incidents around the country, but nothing particularly out of the ordinary. Um, and of course, yesterday was one day, and as, as people know well, there are many um, elections still to be called. There are many votes still to be counted. But yesterday was a good day, and it was a day that showed that Americans, you know, they showed up and they voted, and they did so as they should in an orderly, peaceful, and generally very engaged way. I'm sure you're worried about this, but a lot of Canadians worried as well how these results could affect Canada-U.S. relations. Some have credited the, credited the lobbying of Canadian officials for getting changes to the Buy American policies to make them Buy North American. However, that was passed without the support of Republicans. So if they win control of Congress, how worried are you that we could see a disruption of the implementation or even a change to it? Well... Um, the first thing that I would say is in the process of working on the issue around buy North American for EV electric vehicles and critical minerals and batteries, uh, we had a lot of Republican support on the Hill. Um, it wasn't required to, to make the changes that were made to the legislation, but that was just one tiny part of the legislation. Uh, but many, many Republicans told us that they think that it's essential for Canada and the U.S. to have solid, um, very well-organized uh, Canada-U.S. supply chains in particular for, for critical products. So I, I, I guess I, I, that is not a, a major concern for me. And I think more broadly what I'd like to say is that our job here in, in Washington and in the network across the United States is to build relationships with Republicans and Democrats at the federal level in states and local governments on issues that matter to us so and that matter to them and what we what we find is that many many of the issues that are most important to Canada whether as I say it's these critical supply chains or energy security or international security or or law enforcement on the home front um, or protecting certain waterways and certain lakes uh, our environment our north uh, they're very bipartisan issues because they matter to the constituents of American lawmakers and um, therefore, they matter to those lawmakers, and we, we were able to get stuff done together. So issues really matter, um, and I, in my experience, they matter um, much more in the long term than party affiliation, because that's what voters care about is the issues. Yeah, and another issue that a lot of people care about was Roe v. Wade. That was a big ballot box issue in a number of states. I wanted to talk to you about this interview that the Washington Post had with Missioner Governor Gretchen Whitmer. She spoke about uh, protecting abortion rights. She was asked what women in her state should do if she didn't win back the governorship. Now, she did win that race, but I wanted to talk to you about her answer specifically. Here is what Whitmer said. She said, quote, One of the things that I've tried to get the federal government to prepare for is the possibility of setting up clinics just over the border in Canada. Did you have any conversations about this with your American colleagues? I didn't have any specific conversations with that, have not had specific conversations with American colleagues about that. Uh, but I do take your point. I think that it was very interesting that the exit polls showed when they asked American voters yesterday what they cared about most as they were casting their ballot, 
you know, number one was inflation. I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. But number two was protecting a woman's right to choose. And we saw that in the results that happened on those ballot box issues in a number of states yesterday where those rights were protected constitutionally in certain states and attempts to negate them constitutionally were rejected in Kentucky. So I think that's very important. Um, and I think that it will be very um, interesting and important to watch how this unfolds over the next months in the U.S., specifically at the state level. So is that something the Canadian government is even willing to consider, these so-called, like, maybe cross-border clinics? Well, I, you know, I guess what I can say at this point in time, because there isn't any specific proposal on the table, what I can say is our government's policy is to um, advocate for a woman's right to choose at home, obviously, um, but internationally with all our international partners, and that includes the United States. Uh, and we have been doing that uh, when relevant and appropriate here in the U.S. And I think it's a, it's a conversation that will, will continue as these measures, which are implemented now at the state level, although potentially, I suppose, some, some legislation could come forward at the federal level, um, and that's going to play itself out in the, in the next number of months, maybe, maybe years, I don't know, but certainly months. Canada's Ambassador to the United States, Kirsten Hillman, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Coming up, an impasse over health care funding. Why did talks between Canada's health ministers fail to produce a new deal on health transfers? We'll be joined by someone who is at the negotiation table, Saskatchewan's mental health minister, Everett Hinley. Stay right here. That's coming up next on Power Play. not just a question of uh, putting more money into uh, what the president of the Canadian Medical Association referred to as a broken system. It's about making concrete improvements to the system. We talked about things like better access to family doctors. We've talked about uh, more speedy access to mental health supports. Uh, these are the kinds of things that Canadians know we need. Uh, it's not just about putting more money in, although money is going to be important. It's about making sure we're delivering results and outcomes that Canadians can feel. He has just yesterday um, caused a massive uh, blow-up of meetings on uh, health care funding. So they walked away without getting anything done. Are we in the middle of a health care blame game? That was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Conservative leader Pierre Polyev addressing the failed talks between Canada's health ministers. Here's what's at stake. The provinces and territories were calling for the feds to boost their share of health care costs from 22% to 35%. That's an increase of about $28 billion. It would take the Canada Health Transfer from $42 billion to $70 billion. The Fed say they're willing to up their share, but say that cash would come with conditions. One of those conditions, a commitment from the provinces to help build a health care data system. So why did the talks fail yesterday? Let's ask someone who was at the table. Joining me from Regina is Everett Hinley, Saskatchewan's Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Mr. Hinley is also the province's Minister for Rural and Remote Health. Welcome, Minister. Thanks for being here. I'll get right into it. You were at that meeting yesterday in Vancouver. Why did the talks break down? 
thanks, Mike, for, for the opportunity to be in the program here this afternoon. You know, we, uh, we spent the past couple of days as federal, uh, well, provincial and territorial health ministers getting together uh, and unified uh, as we continue to be on this issue of the Canada Health Transfer. Uh, we know that we need to see a, a substantial long-term increase to the amount of funding that comes from the federal government towards healthcare. Uh, the 22% that uh, they're contributing right now just doesn't cut it anymore. Um, you know, and we're asking for that amount to, to increase to 35% and to do so for, for the long term. Uh, we've been very clear about that as provincial and territorial ministers of health. Uh, and we were clear on that again uh, to, uh, this week in, in a unified ma matter. Uh, and in addition to that, continue to, to ask the federal government and ask the prime minister to sit down with Canada's premiers. They've been requesting that for a period of months now to be able to deal with this issue once and for all. And, uh, and unfortunately, it was disappointing that we haven't been able to achieve that as of yet, despite the, the, the very, very excellent work that's being done by uh, provinces and territories right across Canada. So, Minister, was there zero progress made yesterday? Well, I would say that the, we as provinces and territories continue to make significant progress when it comes to health care. Uh, we talked around the table about the significant investments that are being made right across this country by uh, provinces and territories from, from border to border to border about the investments that are being made into health care. That includes here in Saskatchewan, we're making new investments into health human resources. We're making investments into training seed expansion. Other provinces and territories are doing that as well. We're doing that despite the fact that we don't have the federal But, but I mean on the deal with the feds. Sorry, Minister, I, just, I, I hate to interrupt you, but I don't have a lot of time. I mean on the deal with the federal government. So zero progress yesterday? Not even well, any? There was, there was, yeah, to be clear, there was no deal from the federal government. There was no deal presented to us as ministers. Okay, so also I wanted to ask you, Jean-Yves Duclos, the health minister, the federal health minister, claims that you as health ministers were given marching orders to stop the negotiations. Was that the case? Did you get an order from Premier Mo to stop talking yesterday? That, that's incorrect. You know, uh, what we did, Mike, is we were getting together for the first time in person as uh, provincial and territorial health ministers to try to advance this very important cause for Canadians right across uh, this country and including in our province here in, in Saskatchewan. And we're continuing to make these investments uh, as provinces and territories into improving health care uh, in, in Saskatchewan and right across this country. We're going to do that work and we do so and report to the progress we made in, in a public fashion. We're very transparent and accountable about the dollars that we spend into health care and we continue to advocate on a united front that it's time for the federal government to step up and increase their share of funding for health care to 35% of the CHD. But is that where we are? We're at a stalemate now? I mean, I'm, I'm trying to get an idea because I think Canadians at home are saying the health care system is in a bad situation and they're looking at politicians fighting over money and they want to know was there any a bit of progress made yesterday? Like, what is well, the state of the actual negotiations? How far are you apart? Well, as I said, uh, provinces and territories continue to make the investments into their own healthcare systems uh, within their own jurisdictions. What we need to have happen now is for, as Canada's premiers have been asking for, is for the prime minister to have a, to have a meeting, to have a sit down, to talk about the Canada Health Transfer Agreement, but not just talk about it, but commit to sustainable, long-term funding for healthcare for provinces and territories right across this uh, right across this nation to the two to thirty-five percent. I understand that, Minister, but are you saying that it has to come with no strings attached no matter what? Because it sounds like from the federal government, the only condition that they wanted was to help build this data system for the entire country. Is that a condition that the provinces cannot meet? 
Well, we've been very clear about, you know, being transparent and accountable in terms of the health dollars we spend and where we spend those those dollars. I think each and every province and territory gave examples at these meetings this week of how they're doing that, how they've done that in the past and how they will continue to do that. In our province, in the case of Saskatchewan, we announced at the beginning of September, uh, as an example, $60 million for a, a new Health Human Resources Action Plan here in Saskatchewan. We are already providing updates with respect to it publicly about what we're doing to achieve that. We're making investments into so things like So then why like isn't there a minister? So then, so then why does it seem like that's such a hard thing to agree to for everybody else? Well, I, again, that's a great question for, for the federal government. We're, we're doing our part. No, no, sorry, Minister. In, in, in all fairness, it's a great question for all of the ministers of health in the provinces, and you're one of them. So if you're already doing it, and we, ha- we had yesterday Adrian Dix talking about how he wouldn't have a problem with that. So then where's, where's the problem here? Well, again, we, we need the Prime Minister to come to the table with the Premiers. That's something that we've been asking for uh, for a number of months now, each and every province and territory in this country, to finalize that deal when it comes to the Canada Health Transfer, the increase in funding that's required over the long term. So is, is the problem now that you just won't sit down with Minister Duclos, that it has to be the Prime Minister with the, the Premiers, and, and that's as far as you guys will go now? Well, we had our meetings this week as uh, territorial and provincial ministers on Monday, and then with uh, uh, Minister Duclos and Minister Bennett at the at the table uh, yesterday. Um, but again, even prior to that, and we've had a number of conversations virtually. We've had these meetings before. Again, this is the first time we've had the opportunity in, in some time to have a face to face with the with the federal minister uh, ministers of health. But again, I would just reiterate that the Canada's premiers have been asking for a face-to-face with the prime minister, specifically on this issue of the Canada Health Transfer for months now. It's time for that to occur. I want to ask you one last question. The prime minister has called out provinces saying that they claim that they're strapped for health care cash, but at the same time, they're giving tax breaks uh, to their citizens, also the wealthy. Your premier, Scott Moe, says he's going to be giving out $500 in tax credit checks to residents this fall to help with inflation. So how can you argue with the federal government's conditions on health care money if they want to just ensure that that money is actually going into health care? Well, in that case, Mike, we're, we're doing both. We're making investments into health care, not only in this year's budget, but additional new investments, as I spoke about earlier, when it comes to health human resources, as an example here in, in Saskatchewan. But we're also trying to address some of the issues when it comes to affordability. And uh, we're fortunate we're in a position here in Saskatchewan as a result of resource revenues, which are owned by all of the residents of Saskatchewan, that we're able to make these sorts of uh, investments to help with affordability and some offset some of the rising costs that are that are involved with, with that. We're trying to 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 make sure that we're uh, in, in helping people in both of these areas when it comes to affordability and when it comes to health care. And uh, as I said off the top, it's important that we have the federal government uh, now doing uh, their fair share of this as well. Saskatchewan's Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, Everett Hinley. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Coming up, the Emergencies Act inquiry shifts the spotlight to Alberta. What did Coots Mayor, the mayor of Coots have to say about then-Alberta Premier Jason Kenney's handling of the border blockades in that town? CTV News' Glenn McGregor has the latest from the inquiry. Stay with us. Powerplay continues after this.
When I look for the definition of uh, a domestic terrorist, these people seem to fit that bill, and yet no one ever labeled them that. That was Jim Willett, the mayor of Coots, Alberta, talking about a text exchange with the provincial transport minister at the time. The testimony came at the inquiry looking to the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act. Remember, back in February, Coots was the site of a major blockade on a key truck route between Canada and the United States. Now, The mayor of that border town also said he believed then-Premier Jason Kenney was ignoring the severity of the situation. For more on today's testimony at the inquiry, let's bring in CTV News senior political correspondent Glenn McGregor. Thanks for joining us, Glenn. Some strong language there used by the mayor of Coots. How did that frame his testimony today, but also the, frame the actual protest at the border? Yeah, Mike, we've heard a lot about the effects of the occupation here in Ottawa on the people, the residents here. Uh, we got a different perspective from Jim Willett, who is the mayor of a very small community of Coots, about what the blockade of the highways going to the border uh, in Alberta did to his community. And he was very emotional at times, talking about how he had initially supported this uh, protest and, and understood the reasons why people were protesting against the border mandates. But then he said it changed and it became... Uh, uh, first of all, a full-on blockade that kept people in his community from going to another community, a larger community called Milk River, where they need to go to do shopping and for doctor's appointments and dentist appointments. And he said it really affected people there in the same way that the closure of the border affected all the commerce coming in and out of Alberta, uh, which, of course, affected the province's economy and Canada's economy as well. So you heard from Jim Willett, kind of a, he described a sort of narrative arc where he was supportive and then got frustrated. He was frustrated that the provincial government that he was talking to, he, he was uh, speaking to the Solicitor General of Alberta on a pretty regular basis, and they just didn't seem to act. It wasn't until the RCMP did that raid and found cache of weapons and uh, ammunition and body armor and made arrests did things really change and that he's in his view is what ended the blockade in coots that the protesters who were there said we don't want to stick around for this anymore this is not what we signed on for and then they pretty much went home uh, en masse on the 15th of february the day after the emergencies act was invoked but willett said he didn't think that was the reason why they left they just didn't want to be associated with what he called these sort of extremist groups that had attached themselves or tried to attach themselves to the blockaded coots, Mike. Yeah, Glenn, there was also a scary moment at the inquiry where proceedings had to be halted. What happened today? Yeah, so, yeah it was really strange. Uh, one of the, the, the commission counsel, basically a lawyer who's acting on behalf of the commission, interviewing witnesses on the stand, he collapsed uh, shortly into an examination of a witness from the Ontario government, and the uh, hearing was was uh, immediately paused. Uh, we had uh, first responders come from the, uh, uh, the fire department here in Ottawa and put the whole thing on hold. Uh, he was taken out on a stretcher. Uh, seemed to be okay, though, good news. Um, he was conscious and, and looked to be alert and had good color. Uh, so we think he's going to be fine. But it's kind of thrown the schedule here into the, in the inquiry into a little bit of disarray. They've had to juggle some witnesses. And of course, they're working on a very tight timeline. They're trying to get all this testimony in so they can file a report to the federal government on whether the Emergencies Act should, have, should or should not have been invoked. They've got to do that early next year. So it's just another kind of delay in this process. Cost them a few hours. They could, be, they could make it up with some, you know, maybe some later nights this week. But they're under the gun, uh, spending long days of testimony and hundreds and hundreds 
of thousands of pages of documents and evidence they, they have to go through in order to, to make a decision on whether the invocation was, was truly justified, Mike. Senior political correspondent for CTV National News, Glenn McGregor. Thanks for this, Glenn. Appreciate it. Still to come, Canada-China relations under the microscope. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie laid out themes of the long-awaited and still unreleased Indo-Pacific strategy. What does that signal about the Prime Minister's trip to that region of the world? And how does that strategy change our, change our relationship with China? Press Gallery will dive into that right after this. We will challenge China when we ought to, and we will cooperate with China when we must. What I would like to say to Canadians doing business in and with China, you need to be clear-eyed. The decision you take as business people are your own. As Canada's top diplomat, my job is to tell you that there are geopolitical risks linked to doing business with the country. That was Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie earlier today with a preview of the long-awaited and yet-to-be-released Indo-Pacific strategy. She described China as an increasingly disruptive global power and said the second-largest economy in the world will be a central part of that new strategy. Despite the release of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, tensions remain high between Canada and China. So what should be the plan to deal with China and how does that affect the Prime Minister's trip to Southeast Asia? Let's bring in the press gallery. Zian Lum is from Politico. Ian Bailey from the Globe and Mail. And our special guest tonight on the press gallery is Guy Saint-Jacques. He's the former Canadian ambassador to China. Nice to have you all here. Ambassador Saint-Jacques, we're going to start with you. We didn't actually get the Indo-Pacific strategy today. Instead, we got some broad themes. Now, one of them is a pivot from avoiding confrontation with China to a willingness to challenge China. What do you think about that move? Well, it's a, you're right. It's a major change in our engagement strategy with China. And in fact, China did not leave us any, uh, any choice. We have learned a lot in the last few years uh, on the aggressive policies conducted by uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, when we, when I look at uh, uh, the future, we have to expect more of the same. He came out of the 20th Congress party uh, with absolute authority. He is on a mission. And I think uh, knowing uh, all the, the problems we had in the past, including the uh, detention of the two Michaels, uh, we needed to send a clear message. Uh, and what is also important in this is that we have indicated that uh, uh, we are going to work with allies uh, more closely, uh, more closely, including with the United States. And of course, uh, Beijing is going to react very neg negatively to this. Now, this speech comes after Global News reported that CSIS officials warned Prime Minister Trudeau that China had been targeting Canada with a vast campaign of foreign interference. It included allegations of interference in the 2019 election. The Prime Minister responded to that on Monday. Let's have a listen. We have taken significant measures to strengthen uh, our, uh, the integrity of our elections processes and our systems and will continue uh, to invest in the fight against election interference, against foreign interference of our democracies and institutions. Unfortunately, we're seeing uh, that countries uh, 
state actors from around the world, whether it's China or others, uh, are continuing uh, to play uh, aggressive games uh, with our institutions, with our democracies. So Ambassador Saint-Jacques, given what we heard from the Prime Minister there and given what we know, is this new strategy coming too late? Well, I, uh, me for one, uh, I've been waiting a long time to see this and probably it's a case of better late than uh, never. But also I would say, you know, perfection is the enemy of the good. At least now we have something to, to see. I was encouraged to see in the speech of Mrs. Jolie that she referred to interference. Uh, we have to do a lot more to prevent interference because it's happening in our political system. It's happening in the uh, Chinese community. It's happening on our Canadian campuses. And we, we have to push back uh, uh, a lot more forcefully. And speaking of being cleared-eyed, I mean, you had Melanie Jolie today, Zian, talking specifically uh, in a message for businesses about being cleared-eyed, cleared-eyed about risks about doing business in China. So is she basically warning Canadian businesses that they're on their own if they encounter problems in that country? Uh, it's basically unclear right now. What the minister just said today was basically the equivalent of kind of, you know, a wink, wink, nudge, nudge uh, in lieu of, I guess, firmer language some, and unambiguous language on the policy that I guess we'll see uh, in the weeks to come. Um, but, you know, we have seen new rules for um, foreign state-owned companies uh, to... Kind of, you know, they're not allowed to invest in uh, Canadian uh, critical minerals companies. Right. We saw that recently last week when three uh, companies based in China and Hong Kong were uh, asked to divest their investments in Canadian uh, lithium companies. Um, but on you know the business side on trade, uh, what's interesting is that also um, uh, in parallel to the U.S. picking a more aggressive approach, the U.S. is also uh, on track to um, you know getting a very uh, a record trade year with, mm -hmm. with China as well. So that's an, also an interesting kind of like a piece to this. And uh, Canada's also, uh, the trade between Canada and China has also gone up as well. So um, there's a lot of, you know, details are up in right. the air. And then I guess we'll see uh, when, where the chips fall, when, whenever yeah. Global Affairs decides to table the policy. Whenever it's finally released. But picking up on Zian's um, point there, the critical mining companies, our banning of Huawei. I mean, is this a signal that Canada is trying to close itself off from China, despite the trade numbers that she just mentioned? It's probably a signal that Canada is trying to close itself off, but there are also pressures developing on Canada to act on this file. We had two prominent intelligence officers uh, from major organizations addressing a parliamentary committee not too long ago and raising concerns about this. There was a poll in the Globe and Mail in the last number of days showing the public is concerned about this issue. And today we had uh, Pierre Polyev, the conservative leader, a rare news conference, uh, sort of uh, making a political argument on this front. And you know that Mr. Polyev presumably will be diligent in pressing the government on this. Also, of course, the prime minister is headed to Asia. So all of these factors build together that's going to create pressure on the government to follow through on this. We'll see how events also place pressure, but surely there's going to be pressure on the government to be serious on this and to, uh, to carry through on this in uh, the days, weeks, months, years ahead. Ambassador Saint-Jacques, I mean, Ian just mentioned that trip that the Prime Minister is going on to Southeast Asia. He's going to attend the G20 summit, the ASEAN summit, and the APEC meeting. How does this uh, so-called, even though it's just the hints and the sort of building blocks of this Indo-Pacific strategy, how does it really set the table for this particular trip? Well, I think the, uh, the speech will have been well received. Of course, uh, people will be waiting to see uh, what uh, comes next. And the 
the, the, the key part in this is uh, how much additional resources will be devoted to the uh, strategy. Uh, and, uh, you know, the uh, uh, Mrs. Jolie addressed all the, uh, the right issues. She, she talked about the, the five objectives. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, when if we were to invest more in uh, uh, military in the military, uh, this could also serve the, the purpose of uh, uh, protecting Arctic uh, sovereignty. And it could mean uh, more assets that could be deployed in Asia for military exercises as, as required. But uh, again, uh, you know, we, we have neglected this area for the last 10, 12 years. Uh, people uh, will be waiting to see what concretely will be done. Uh, I expect that uh, there will be uh, additional resources. And we, uh, and I should say that we are not uh, starting complete, uh, completely from scratch because we had very successful development programs in the past in countries like Indonesia, uh, in India, and elsewhere. And so we should be building on this, but it will take some time to uh, build back uh, trust. Ambassador Saint-Jacques, thank you so much for your time and your expertise today. We're going to leave it there with you, Zian and Ian. You'll be sticking around to tackle this subject. The leader of the opposition met with the media today. doesn't happen often, so yes, it's news. Oliev talked about Trudeau and his relationship with the media. When it comes to taking questions, is scarcity part of his strategy? Our special guest on the press gallery is Yaroslav Baran, the former Conservative Party spokesperson. Power Play will be back right after this. Justin Trudeau has created divisions right across this country. He's turned west against east. He's turned provinces against the federal government. He has just yesterday um, caused a massive uh, blow-up of meetings on uh, health care funding. So they walked away without getting anything done. The problem is not any particular premier. The problem is the prime minister. That was opposition leader Pierre Polyev in B.C. giving his first major media availability in 57 days. We'll get to that in a second. But first, he ramped up the rhetoric today saying, quote, everything is broken in this country and blame Prime Minister Justin Trudeau for all of it. Sky high inflation to the rates of drug addiction in this country. Pierre Polyev says it's all Justin Trudeau's fault. But the conservative leader promised he can fix it. So does Pierre Polyev have a plan to fix everything? And what about that relationship that he has, or lack thereof, with the media? Let's bring in our press gallery panel to weigh in. We have Ian Bailey from The Globe and Mail, political reporter Zian Lum, and our special guest today is former Conservative Party spokesperson Yaroslav Baran. Yaroslav is also a partner with Earnscliffe Strategies. Thank you all for being here. Yaroslav, we'll start with you. First off, Pierre Polyev, this strategy of basically saying that everything is broken and all, everything is to blame, uh, you know, lay the blame at Justin Trudeau. Everything that, will, that, you know, is dealing, that Canadians are dealing with right now. Break down this strategy for us right now, if you don't mind. Well, to be honest, I'm not sure it's much of a, much, uh, much of a strategy. You've been in this game a long time. You've been a reporter for a long time. I think Mr. Pierre, uh, Mr. Polyev is hardly the first opposition leader to point the finger at the government for saying, hey, look, it's saying everything's his fault. Look, um, in truth, look, I'm going to pull a Freeland. 
I do have privilege. My kids don't have to worry about will they eat tomorrow. There are a lot of people out there who don't. How's your Disney yeah. Plus subscription? Though? Uh, I, I never to... had one. Never okay, had okay, one, Mike. Okay, but look, enough. you know, a lot of people out there are suffering. Uh, price of food is going up. Price of gas is going up. You know, they keep, we keep hearing about hospital wait times, like 15 minutes at Chi or 15 hours at Chio, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of frustration out there. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that Mr. Polyev is such a good communicator is he has this ability to actually listen, hear what people are saying, and to tap into that and and reflect it back and to show that to show that he cares and he actually hears them. So that's actually a gift of his, and that's why I think we're going to see increasingly that he is a formidable, formidable opposition leader. As far as blaming the government for the woes of the nation, that's hardly novel. I think that's, frankly, an opposition leader's job. But how long Zan can he sustain this playbook? I mean, we've got maybe two and a half, three years until the next election? I think as long as Trudeau's in government, as long as the parliamentary press gallery exists, he can probably sustain this uh, playbook because uh, as long as those two uh, bodies kind of exist, he has a foil to kind of build his base as well. Um, yeah, that thought that, that, I guess, complaint, that rant, that diatribe, mm -hmm. that everything feels broken right now. You know, it's, it's great grocery store, like, chit-chat, but it's not really, you know, moving the needle on, like, policy kind of, like, ideas. Um, he's a good communicator, yes, um, but, you know, is he a good policy maker? Because that, I would think, uh, would be more consequential if he wants to be, you know, prime minister one day. So yeah. uh, less, you know, less zingers, maybe more policy. And Ian, to that point, is he putting enough out there for Canadians? We're not in the middle of a campaign yet, even though some of these, um, you know, stops look like campaign stops. But is he putting enough in the window for Canadians right now to feel like they can trust him and that he does have a plan? Well, you know, it's, it's, um, he's put the basics out there in his uh, remarks in the House and his, his tweets for Canadians who are reading those tweets. Uh, this, you know, the side effect of today's news conference... Uh, rare news conference by Mr. Polyev is that he provided some nuance to some policy issues. Something I hear from people, you know, outside of Ottawa calling is like, where, how does he feel about issues? What, what's a bit more detail on issues? Clearly, he doesn't want to do many news conferences, but the side effect of today is that he did get into some detail on issues like Alberta's concerns with the federal government on some other policy pieces. He spoke to those issues. He hasn't spoken to them before. He hasn't been asked about them before. So he's, I think he moved the needle a bit today, but uh, certainly over time he'll have to put some detailed policy out there. But, of course, uh, he's got two years things go as they stand to the next election. So he probably doesn't want to put everything out there uh, until uh, the writ is dropped. Yeah, and so Yaroslav, is that part of the issue, that he's not being asked the questions? We'll get to that in a second, because that is the second half of this panel. But is, does he not need to put any meat on the bone just yet? Well, I mean, these are strategic questions. Uh, we often hear these kinds of discussions in the lead-up to an election campaign. Do you do the big reveal of your platform on day one, or do you do a slow, you know, a plank a day kind of thing? Uh, can you be overexposed? When is, when is too much? When is too early? These are totally tactical questions. Like, in our system, the onus is always on government to govern. Uh, it's the opposition's job to poke, prod, stress test, challenge. That's the way our system is designed. You know, we can quibble with whether it ought to be that way, but that's the way it is. It's the way it has been for 150 years. It, by and large, seems to work pretty okay. Um, sooner or later, he is going to want to put proactive, mm -hmm. positive policy forward. I would guess that's, you know, putting real meat on the bones is going to be closer to election time. And speaking of digging into things and policy, the press gallery here in Ottawa has not been given much of a chance, Zian, to really talk to him. 
Once again today, he had this press conference in BC, far away from the Parliamentary Press Gallery, but he also pointed out that the Parliamentary Press Gallery doesn't set the agenda. What do you make of, of what is happening here? Does he have a point that we don't drive the agenda and he should be out there talking to ordinary Canadians instead of us? Well, first, props to his team for staging a presser in Kitsilano, because if you want to raise a question about, you know, a debate about affordability, right. that's the neighborhood you do it in. Yeah. Um, but look, he doesn't really have, you know, as he stated today, he doesn't have a problem speaking to reporters. He just has a problem speaking to the parliamentary press gallery, right. um, which, you know, is a problem because he is a leader of a federal party who lives in a taxpayer-subsidized uh, house. And this happens to be the press corps that he has the most exposure to as, uh, you know, a resident of the National Capital Region uh, and a member of a parliament who represents a riding, an Ottawa area riding, so he spends a lot of time here. So that's obviously a problem here, but, you know, you're asking me, a reporter, how I feel about an elected official um, skirting questions, yeah. um, you know, my answer is going to be obvious. Um, there's nothing brave or admirable in ducking accountability questions, uh, regardless of which party you fall under. Ian, I want to get you on this because you did that story original that it was 40 days. Now we're at 57. Um, so does time matter and does who asked ask the questions matter? And, and I say that, um, you know, understanding we, the three of us are members of the parliamentary press gallery and we cover him and his policies. So He's not getting those pointed questions from us, but does that matter? Well, a few points. Um, many of the journalists who would have been asking him questions today are with media organizations that are members of the parliamentary press gallery. So this notion that he has moved away from the parliamentary press gallery in some respects is uh, a little bit questionable. Um, many political leaders uh, managed to speak to the parliamentary press gallery and to speak to journalists outside the parliamentary press gallery and to speak to members of multicultural media. They do it all. It's not an either or an or. Uh, Mr. Polyev has said he is intent on making this the freest country in the world. He is certainly free at this point to not speak to the parliamentary press gallery. But it's unusual. It's a very... Uh, uh, striking thing because, of course, in legislatures across this country, opposition leaders manage to find the time and the yeah. energy. I want to, to get Yaroslav in here on just on this. Is this a concerted effort to avoid the parliamentary press gallery? Avoid? I'm not sure. And by the way, for perspective, I did watch just yesterday a feature-long interview with a reporter from Post Media, yeah. you know, so we can't overstate uh, the facts. Like, we've been having this conversation for 20 years, the disruption in the news business, the role of social media, what is the future of communication? What we're Sadly, witnessing I got to cut you off and we'll continue uh, this conversation later, um, Yaroslav. Really sorry, because we got to go. Yaroslav Baran, Zian Lum, Ian Bailey, thank you so much. That's your Power Play Day in Politics. We'll be back here tomorrow, everyone, maybe having this conversation again. <laughs> <All> Good night. <laughs>